It's Sunday, February 18th, day 155 of the October 7th war. We'll go to Tel Aviv for a security briefing. We'll go to London to speak with anti-Semitism activist Dov Foreman and be joined from Los Angeles by comedian Ilan Gold, fresh from a visit to Israel. Keeping you up to date, I'm Michael Dixon, and this is Stand With Us TV Live. Shalom, we're live from Israel, and thank you to the 160,000 viewers of a special live show with Douglas Murray, with over 1.5 million of you watching clips on social media. If you haven't had the chance to view our last briefing, our special with Douglas Murray, or you want to watch it again, check it out on Stand With Us YouTube channel. Now, in a moment, we'll head to Tel Aviv for a security briefing, but first, a roundup on the last week of Israel at war. Specialist IDF forces searching NASA hospital in Khan Yunis have detained over 100 terror suspects. Hostages were held by Hamas at the hospital and heavy weaponry found inside the medical facility. Arrests at NASA hospital include 20 terrorists who perpetrated the October 7th attacks. The International Court of Justice has rejected a South African request for urgent measures to limit Israeli action against Hamas in Rafah. Two people were murdered and four hurt in a terror attack at Re'em Junction in southern Israel. The terrorist was shot dead. Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah has said that the terrorist group will continue attacks from Lebanon until hostilities in Gaza end. To date, over 3,000 rockets have been fired by Hezbollah in Lebanon towards Israel since October the 7th. And Israel will compete in the Eurovision Song Contest after a campaign to lobby against their participation failed. The European Broadcast Union agreed with over 400 celebrities who joined Creative Community for Peace to state that music is a place for unity and not division. Israel has won the competition in the past on four occasions. Let's get the latest. Now joining us live once again is former IDF international spokesperson and senior fellow for the Foundation of Defense of Democracies, Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Comricus. Lieutenant Colonel, thank you once again for being with us. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be with you and everything, the the amazing content that is produced on uh, Stand With Us. Thank you so much. And I've actually just made it to the studio from the convening of the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations in Jerusalem, where the Prime Minister and Ambassador Jacob Liu addressed the audience. And one of the things that the Prime Minister just said was that we will not stop until total victory. And he made the point about not allowing one quarter of Hamas to go, uh, you know, without being taken off uh, the field. Uh, your response to how we think the IDF operation is going right now in terms of reaching that total victory? Well, based on all of the data and information from the battlefield, it is going as well as it possibly could. You know, it's a horrible situation. We have, of course, casualties. The IDF sustains casualties. But if you could say good or very good about anything related to war, then I would do so. Um, The IDF is dismantling Hamas 
and its infrastructure in Khan Yunus, taking each area after area, neighborhood after neighborhood, dismantling important assets that Hamas perhaps thought were um, not takeable by the IDF, that the IDF couldn't reach them, but the IDF has proved otherwise. Um, they again, Hamas, like they always do, use human humanitarian facilities uh, under uh, the hope that the IDF won't attack them there and won't uh, fight there. But that hope has been, of course, uh, in vain for many times. They started with it a few months ago at the Shifa Hospital and many other hospitals in Gaza and the Nasser Hospital uh, in southern uh, in Khan Yunis is no different. And we've seen significant fighting there. Uh, Hamas militants and terrorists using that in direct contravention to international humanitarian law, fighting from within the hospital and also using the hospital either to uh, hold Israeli hostages there or to ha have some kind of treatment facility there. But anyhow, there's evidence of Israeli hostages that were present in that hospital. So in terms of advances on the ground, doing very well. And I think that Hamas is unraveling under the pressure that the IDF is focusing, effective operations on the ground and below the ground. And now the IDF is getting ready for the next stage, which will be taking the last Hamas stronghold, Rafah, in the south, and very importantly, taking out the tunnels that allow all of the weapons in from Egypt into Gaza. And the prime minister saying within the last couple of hours to that convening, uh, that there would be an operation happening in Rafah. No one should be stopping us. And, and uh, Minister from the War Cabinet, Benny Gantz, echoing those sentiments again to the same convening. And so the understanding is that Hamas had 24 battalions and has about six left. Is that what we understand right now? I think that's a correct estimate. Uh, there should be four Hamas battalions in Khan Yunis. And then what's left, sorry, in Rafah, Mm. Uh, four Hamas battalions in Rafah and what's left of the battalions in Khan Yunis. Uh, so we're talking about a significant attrition of enemy capabilities by the IDF with significantly low amount of non-combatants killed and also Israeli troops, relatively low uh, amount of Israeli soldiers killed, which is, of course, extremely important. And at the end of the day, you know, in any war all over the world, you never allow your enemy uh, a way out until he surrenders. And uh, that's where we are now. Israel has Hamas on, on its back foot. Uh, Hamas is in a corner. And Israel will go ahead and pursue until either Hamas leaders and all of the terrorists surrender or, or until they die. It's very simple and it is classic warfare. Nothing special about it. This is how... Uh, militaries fight in war and nobody should be surprised surprised about it. I'm just surprised that there are people around the world who think that they could propose such an idea to Israel, basically that Israel hands, has its hands around Hamas's neck and telling Israel to let go, let them breathe. No, that's never done in warfare. Either they surrender or they die. Uh, especially after, of course, the atrocious attack of October the 7th, it's very clear what happens when we allow an enemy like Hamas the time to reorganize. That's why Israel needs to go into Rafah. That's why Israel needs to take the tunnels. And I think it's a matter of a relatively short time, maybe a few more months of fighting. And then Hamas, from a military point of view, will be something that will be relegated to history.
And of course, the concerns that uh, from certain quarters, including perhaps the American administration that are coming, are for the civilians in Rafah. And it's a, a tough situation. Perhaps the battle is a little clearer in central Gaza against those two battalions. But the four battalions in Rafah, of course, are surrounded by civilians. And so what lengths is the IDF going to to protect civilian life while carrying out this anti-terrorism operation in Rafah? Yeah, I think the IDF is going to tremendous and unprecedented lengths when it comes to getting civilians out of the battlefield and striking and operating surgically in certain areas while leaving other areas untouched by fighting. It is a very complex situation, one that, you know, it could have been different had UNRWA and the other UN organizations decided to cooperate with Israel and to establish a humanitarian zone two and a half or three months ago. They decided not to do it, and that's why all of these Palestinians are now inside Yunis and Rafah, instead of being in an organized, structured, and well-facilitated humanitarian zone that, till this day, has not been erected because UNRWA has been against it. And they've been playing with the lives of Palestinians, sacrificing them, putting them at great danger and discomfort. And what the IDF is doing now is, despite these despicable actions by UNRWA, the IDF is going ahead, vacating uh, civilians. It will either be to the uh, newly established humanitarian zone in the north or to an area closer to Israel so that Israel will have the ability to operate freely. I think the IDF is very aware of the uh, magnifying glass that it is under when it comes to civilian casualties. And, you know, even if you look at uh, numbers, the number of civilians reportedly by Hamas killed in the battles of Khan Yunus are far, far less than what happened in Gaza. So Israel, if you put it on a time scale, you can see that there's a steady decline in any non-combatant casualties with the Palestinians because the IDF goes to tremendous lengths in order to uh, prevent when it comes to how it uses fires, the amount of troops in any certain area, advance warning, and of course, making people move out of certain areas where it is operating. So all of these things are very good. They're contributing to lowering the number of non-combatants killed. I'm confident that the IDF will continue to do so. It would be great if Egypt, out of compassion and love and sympathy for their Muslim brothers in Gaza, would open the gates and allow Palestinian refugees temporary refuge in Sinai. I think that would save a lot of lives and probably be the best humanitarian solution. But it doesn't look as if uh, Egypt really cares about the well-being of Gazans and it's more concerned about other things, sadly. And of course, all this time, the hostages foremost in our minds, we saw a heroic rescue operation in the last week. Uh, we saw the rescue of 70-year-old uh, Louis Ha and 60-year-old Fernando Marman. Uh, tell us a bit about that and perhaps the opportunity that there may be more such rescues. Well, first of all, it proves that it can be done and that the Israel has the ability to do so. Of course, less than what we would have expected, and I, for one, would have expected Israel to be capable of rescuing more Israelis. And I know that the security forces are hard at work in creating other opportunities. And, you know, hundreds of Hamas terrorists are surrendering. Each and every one of them are investigated and, ter and interrogated, and many of them provide very useful intelligence. That intelligence 
hopefully will generate future rescue uh, operations that will bring hostages back. Um, I don't want to, you know, I hope that the diplomatic efforts will bear fruit and that they will allow us to get the Israelis home. But if they don't, I think that a very important option that needs to be front and center is saving hostages and getting them out uh, from uh, where they've been held so cruelly and so brutally by Hamas for almost four and a half months. And of course, diplomatic pressure, we hope, being placed on Qatar, who have such an influence over Hamas. Uh, we hope in any way uh, that we get our hostages back and every one of them. Uh, let's talk a moment about the northern border. We saw a major escalation from Hezbollah this week, uh, many rockets coming in, and then, of course, reprisals from the IDF and, unfortunately, deaths on the Israeli side. Is this war? Well, it is uh, going towards that. You know, so far, both Israel and Hezbollah have been very disciplined when it comes to the use of fire and only escalating to a certain level. But I agree with you, Michael. What we saw last week was a quite blunt escalation by Hezbollah, leading to Israeli casualties. An Israeli soldier was killed in Tzfat, and Israeli civilians were wounded by rocket fire. Um, so what we're seeing is an es escalation. Um, I think that Israel has been tremendously patient and strategic in its dealings in the north, waiting for, hoping for a diplomatic solution to be found under American and French and perhaps German involvement. Uh, we're all holding out for that because I think lots of people in Israel know how horrible a war against Hezbollah would be. Uh, for the Israeli home front, for Israeli civilians, for Israeli infrastructure, and putting aside what it would mean for Lebanon. Lebanon would be devastated by such a war, and I think that nobody in Lebanon in their right minds would have an interest in really launching a war. But you can see that both Israel and Hezbollah are relatively careful uh, when it comes to the fighting. But, you know, at the end of the day, there are almost 100,000 Israeli civilians still displaced from their homes. I don't think that Israel will be able to end the war in any way against Hezbollah before these civilians are allowed to go back to their homes safely. And they won't be able to do so before Hezbollah is pushed away from the border. And that can only happen either through diplomacy or through force. So we are in a delicate situation where the lives of Israeli civilians are still very much at risk. And it is the uh, responsibility, of course, of the IDF to make, that, uh, um, to, to make that the opposite and get Israeli civilians home. The next few days and weeks will be very tense when it comes to the northern border. Lieutenant Colonel Krimrikas, we so appreciate you being with us. You've uh, been with us week in, week out with your analysis, and I know you've hot-footed it from the airport uh, where you've just come back from uh, speaking to various news networks across the United States. So thank you so much once again for being My with pleasure us. and honor, Michael. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Uh, now, don't forget, if you enjoy our live shows and you want to be kept up to speed with all that's happening, be sure to click on the subscribe button on the Stand With Us YouTube page, and you can keep our work going strong by donating at standwithus.com slash donate. Thank you so much for your partnership. Now, our next guest became a best-selling author when he teamed up with his now 100-year-old great-grandmother to tell her story of Holocaust survival to the world via the book Lily's Promise and to their over 2 million 
TikTok followers. Take a look. I remember the first time I went to, to my great grandmother and I said, let's set up a TikTok account. And she laughed. She'd obviously seen it on the news, people going viral for dancing. And she said to me, I'll set up a TikTok account, but I'm not dancing. <laughs> and we don't dance. We, we spread important messages and we, we continue to educate. And I think it's really important. And the response we've had is so overwhelming. It's millions of positive comments and likes every single day. And for my great grandmother to know that people are recognizing her and hearing her voice, it's really important for her because she knows that these are the last moments for people to hear from her and from her fellow survivors. It is very important, the new generation, because that is the future and they should really be, be taught and they should taught the whole world what really can happen when people are not tolerant to each other. It was interesting that somebody like the Prince Charles and here in England, they are interested in me and in my story. And we are the last generation. I hope that it will never happen again and we will stay the last generation who went through so terribly time. And Lily's great-grandson, Dov Foreman, joins us now live from London. Dov, thank you so much for being with us on Stand With Us TV Live. Thank you, Michael. A pleasure to be with you tonight. And of course, uh, your message and Lily's message and Lily's promise has reached many audiences from Buckingham Palace uh, to The View on TV, uh, through networks all around the world. Um, tell us about this journey that you've been on, sharing the history and the story and the lessons learned of your great-grandmother. This all really started during COVID when everyone was at home. People had not much to do, and I was a school student. School moved to online, and so I decided I would start interviewing my great-grandmother to learn more about her story. And I didn't think that three months later we would have a million followers. It was really just so that I could learn as much as I could for myself about her incredibly harrowing Holocaust testimony, but also her incredibly inspirational life. After the Holocaust, she could have been so consumed by hate, but instead she chose love and she built a large and loving family of 10 grandchildren, 37 great-grandchildren, with more on the way and hopefully a great-great-grandchild coming soon. And my great-grandmother survived Auschwitz-Birkenau, four months in Auschwitz-Birkenau, another few months in slave labor camps. And then she was on a death march where she was liberated by a Jewish American soldier. And I began sharing her story in 2020 and late 2021. And I never thought, as I said, that we would have millions of followers. But since the war, everything's changed. Every single day, we wake up to thousands of anti-Semitic comments online, people saying that the Holocaust was a lie or that they hoped that the things that happened to Israeli women on October 7th happened to my great-grandmother. A lot of the time, they say that Hitler missed one and that they hope that my great-grandmother is murdered or bombed. And it's incredibly difficult to see these things, but it only reinforces to me the need for young people to use their platforms, to share the truth, and to stand up for what's right. Because we know that silence is what led to six million Jews being able to be murdered in gas chambers and in the Holocaust. And it's up to us today to say that we won't stay silent. And the pledge of never again has clearly not been upheld. Again, we've seen violence. Again, we've seen wars. But that vow of never again 
has to turn to never again will we allow individuals to remain silent. And on the streets every single week, I'm sat here in London, I see people going out, protesting, and staying silent when they see people with outwardly anti-Semitic and brazenly and openly extremist placards. And they stay silent and they don't say anything against that. And so that's what we're battling with at the moment. And since October 7th, I've been using my platform of, as you said in the introduction, over 2 million followers to educate as much as I can about the truth, whether that's going to the Kibbutzim only a few weeks after October 7th to show the world what really happened there, or even now going on platforms like yours and on TV shows to share what, firstly, Jewish people really are like, and also to share people, to share with people the truth and to ensure that people learn from the past to ensure that that can never happen again now. You know, it's interesting, Dov, and first of all, congratulations on all that you're doing to raise that awareness. Um, I know that our staff at Stand With Us have said that maybe for a moment like this, our organization was created. And I wonder whether you feel a bit like, well, you know, you did all this work in getting that audience, hearing about Lily's story and understanding what the happened during the Holocaust. And now for a moment like this, you're well placed to utilize that platform in order to have people understand what is going on and is, you know what what is your what are your thoughts on the idea that we have to memorialize the dead but at the same time we must think about the living and all of the things that these lessons teach us i think it's so important and as you say i think we're well placed because of the work we've done previously to use our platforms now we're so outnumbered when it comes to firstly followers on social media but also the number of people doing it. And so we have to ensure that anyone with a platform uses it in the right way. And I'll use my great grandmother's story to speak about, about memorializing the dead, but also focusing on the living. And my great grandmother obviously speaks about what happened to her in the Holocaust and her mother, younger sister and youngest brother who were murdered on the 9th of July, 1944 in Auschwitz-Birkenau, only a few hours after they got off the cattle truck. And my great grandmother speaks about when she asked someone who was in Auschwitz, only a few months more than her. What is that chimney? What factory do they produce here? And the person said to her, that's not a factory. That's where your mother, younger sister and youngest brother have just been murdered. She, of course, memorializes them and speaks about them on our platform. But what she also speaks about is about rebuilding, about how the Jewish people, we go from a tragedy and we learn the lessons and we rebuild. And we are positive. And my great grandmother says that she was in the greatest hell ever, Auschwitz-Birkenau. But she then moved to Israel and was in the greatest miracle ever. In 1948, she was on the streets of Tel Aviv when Israel was declared as a state. And so for the Jewish people, it's as much about memorializing the past, but also building a better future. And we can only build a better future in life if we learn from the past and we implement the lessons from the past. And we, again, back to that same point, mustn't remain silent like others did in the past. And the only way that now we can defeat because this war is not only a war on the ground against Hamas monsters in Gaza. It's also a war on social media and a war on our streets across the world against the evil virus of anti-Semitism, which consistently and continuously mutates throughout history. They once hated us because we were communists. They then hated us because we were capitalists. They hated us because we were a religion. Then they hated us because we were ethnicity. And now they hate us because of our nation state. And we have to do all we can to debunk that and to ensure that younger generations on social media, particularly on TikTok, where we have a platform, to ensure that those young people are not exposed to those lies and are not exposed to that extremist anti-Semitism. And so, as you mentioned, you went to Israel very soon after the October the 7th attacks. Um, tell us what you saw. 
it was perhaps the most difficult experience I've ever had and the closest I've ever come to man-made destruction, devastation and death. I've been to the former concentration camp and death camp of Auschwitz more than three times, but going to Kvaraza and the place where the Nova Music Festival took place only three weeks after October 7th was totally different. I went to a place where the blood was still fresh, where those bullet holes had only been inflicted a few weeks earlier. I saw the Hamas uh, military weapons which they we, which were used and that smell in the room and one of the places which I walked into in Kfaraza, I'll never forget that smell. I watched the footage from the Hamas rapist terrorists so that I could go on news sites and that I could tell my followers I know it happened because I've seen it with my own eyes. And what we saw in the weeks and months and even now following October 7th is real-time Holocaust denial. We saw people who, in the face of the worst atrocity against Jewish people since the Holocaust, not only went out on the streets and celebrated, because this week, CST in the UK, the Community Securities Trust, released their annual anti-Semitism report. And that showed that in the week following the October 7th massacre, there was a record level of anti-Semitism never seen in the UK. And that was before there was any response from Israel. And so we saw that there were people outwardly celebrating what happened on October 7th and using that as an excuse to target Jewish people in the United Kingdom. But not only that, we saw those same people denying that it even happened, despite the Hamas terrorists recording it on their own GoPros. So I went there so that I could film the blood on the floor and that I could tell people that I've been there and I've seen the videos so that they know that it happened. And Elie Wiesel, a Nobel Peace Prize winner and a Holocaust survivor, perhaps one of the most famous Holocaust survivors in the world, says, when you listen to a witness, you become a witness. And I went to Kvar Azai. I listened to some of the survivors. I've now, since then, I've met previous ex-hostages. I've spoken to survivors of the Nova Music Festival, of those people who lived in the Kibbutzim. And I've become their witness. And I've tried to share their stories as far and as wide as possible. Because there are, honestly, people who believe that it didn't happen. And we have to try and combat that. And I've seen you take that story to news networks all over. Uh, we have a strong office in the UK, Stand With Us UK, trying to support young people, students in high schools and on university campuses as they fight back against anti-Semitism. You've seen this up close and personal for a long time. I wonder what your message is to young people in the UK where you are, and of course, all across the United States and all around the world who are facing similar things. What's your message to them? They may be uh, perhaps intimidated about showing uh, Jewish signs or about being Jewish publicly on campus or in the community, what would you say to those young people? I would say that firstly, the fear is, is okay. It's difficult times, bleak times, anti-Semitism is at an all-time high. But I would also say that we are stronger together, stronger as a community, and better times will come. I take my strength from my great-grandmother. That's whenever I get anti-Semitic comments, I always speak to her. And she says to me, don't worry about those, better times will come. She was in the darkest hell that's ever been created in this world. Auschwitz-Birkenau, and she survived. And she said, what helped her survive was always seeing that smallest piece of light at the end of the darkest tunnel and realizing that that light will come and it will get closer. And we have to realize today that anti-Semitism will hopefully, and it will because this war will end, go back to how it was before the war. And of course, we'll then have to address it and take a deep look at ourselves in the countries that we live in and say, how did we get here? And what are we going to do to combat this? But it will get better. Better days will come. This war will end at some point because all wars do. And Israel will win the war. 
And then the Jewish people will hopefully be able to, again, learn in freedom on university campuses and feel safe on the streets. But again, we have to then address how did we get here and what are we going to do to prevent this happening in the future? And governments, the police services and ordinary people have a lot to answer for on how they allowed this hatred to rise at unprecedented levels. But again, I would reiterate that better days will come. We should take our strength from the people like the Holocaust survivors, like my great grandmother. And we should realize that we're stronger together and we have power in numbers and the Jewish community is an incredible community. And I think that's, that would be my message to people. And your great grandmother's message has gone far and wide thanks to many of your efforts across social media and beyond. And she recently re received a tremendous honor when she was recognized as a member of the most excellent order of the British Empire, the MBE by none other than King Charles. Can you tell us about that profound experience for her? For her, I think she's so honoured and humbled to have the support of His Majesty King Charles in all of our work. He wrote the foreword to our book. He's met her on a number of occasions. He commissioned a portrait of her, which hangs in Buckingham Palace. And most recently, he awarded her the MBE. We went to Windsor Castle to pick it up, and it was incredibly special. I myself recited the blessing upon when you see a monarch, um, and that was incredibly unique. But for my great-grandmother to know that His Majesty King Charles, the King of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth will stand up for the Jewish community and not allow something like the Holocaust to ever happen again. That's incredibly reassuring to her because the Holocaust, we mustn't forget, was a state-sponsored genocide of all of the Jewish people. They wanted to not only remove every single Jewish person, but every single trace of Judaism. And so for my great-grandmother now to be recognized in such a way by such an important man means so much to her. She never thought that she would even survive Auschwitz, let alone start a family build a life first in Israel and then in the United Kingdom. So to be recognized in this way, I think is the greatest revenge for her. And she often says to me that the Nazis didn't win. And this is just another proliferation of that. And again, we are reassured as a Jewish community in the UK when King Charles can say that Hamas are terrorists, but the BBC couldn't. That reassures us that hopefully the royal family will stand by our side. And if something like the Holocaust would ever be at risk of happening again, which perhaps it was on October 7th, we know that the royal family will stand up for us and say, no, never again. Well, Dov, thank you so much for speaking up. Don't stop. I know you won't. And please do send our love to Lily. Um, we're so impressed by everything she's done with you. It's incredible and so important, especially in these times. We say, Admea the Esram. She should live till 120 and beyond for a long and healthy life. Please send her up. And thank you so much for all that you've been doing. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you, Dov. Incredibly impressive. Now, there haven't been too many laughs in recent months, but when Israel needed cheering up, our next guest was on the first flight over. His next, his Netflix special is titled Chosen and Taken, and you've seen him on The Tonight Show, The Late Late Show, and Curb Your Enthusiasm, and on every Stand With Us Hollywood gala that we've held. He's been here entertaining the crowds in Israel, and joining us now live from Los Angeles is our friend, comedian Elon Gold. Thank Elon, you, thank Michael. Thank you so much for being with us. Michael, before we start, can I just say one thing? Because mm. you know that I love you. I love you. I love the work you do. Stand with us. It's not just Israel advocacy. It's it's holy work. It's God's work. It's tikkun olam. It's healing the world through the power of truth and disseminating the correct information in a world of false narratives and lies. That being said, I am so annoyed at you right now. Why? 
How do you have me, a dumb comedian, following this eloquent, <laughs> beautiful, great-grandson of this amazing, heroic Holocaust survivor? Do you think His Majesty uh, <laughs> King Charles will ever bestow anything on me? Do you think I could ever match the, the eloquence and, and, and the articulate, beautiful words of that dove guy? And now me? You got So now I'm going to return the compliment and tell our viewers that you are, are certainly deserving of being in this poll position in our uh, show today uh, because you're an incredible advocate for the state of Israel and the Jewish people. And you don't just do it through humor. You do it with your heart. And part of that was coming here to Israel right now in the middle of a war. So tell us about that decision to come to Israel. Uh, you know, what has been the most painful moment uh, of all of that? And maybe even what was the most inspiring moment of all of that? Well, okay, if we get serious for a moment, because I'm still upset about following him. Um, I, on October 8th, I just said, I, I, you know, I was reeling from the horror. I was canceling shows. I couldn't be funny, feel funny, think funny. It was just nothing but tragedy and horror. And, but I did have this feeling that I needed to go there. And my first feeling was I needed to go there to show support for our people, for, for, for our homeland. And then, you know, a few months went by and I had to get back to work. I got a mortgage and all that, and I had to be funny. And it was very challenging, just trying to be funny, even today, knowing there are still hostages and tunnels in Gaza. It's, it's very difficult to wake up in the morning and go, Ooh, tonight I have a fun show where I got to be goofy, funny guy. But at the same time, it's my calling and I see, I see it as sort of a, of, of a healing of my people. So I said, who needs it more than anybody? Israelis. Israelis just went through something that is unfathomable. And even though no one's in the mood to laugh over there, nobody wants to laugh. In my head, I said, they need a break. They need to take a moment and just remember that we still have to live life and, and, and there is hope and there is an end to this war. And we have to still find these moments to enjoy, whether it's getting a, you know, going out uh, for dinner or, or something that just takes you out of the hell that we're all in all over the world, but especially in Israel. So I said, that's it. I'm going. And I did three shows um, sold out, not important um, standing ovations. Listen, who's counting? But the point is, they were really meaningful shows. I mean, I cried on stage just to be there to, to give them this moment, this break and this laugh meant the world to me. But the only thing that was more exciting and, and more fulfilling and meaningful was when I got to perform for soldiers. Um, do you want to hear that story? Am I talking too I much? Do. No, you're talking just the right amount. But t tell us what it was like to meet those well, ideal soldiers. You know, first of all, anytime I walk down the street, I just thank them. Any chayal, chayalet, just, thank you, thank you, thank you. I can't walk by someone that's mm -hmm. not just saving the Jewish people, which is so interesting because when I, when I was performing in front of this group of soldiers, I said, thank you for saving our people. And the, the leader of that, of that unit said, uh, we're not saving our people, we're saving all people. We're saving wow. humanity. And that was like, he's right. He's right. And that's what the world doesn't get. The world doesn't get that Israel's doing your dirty work for you, for you to be safe. Not you, the Jewish people, you, all of humanity. And 
to be anything but cheering Israel on. Please take out this evil terrorist group. Please do whatever you can so that we don't have to be threatened. So that, I mean, anything that happens over there happens here. You know, there's nothing uh, copycat terrorism has historically, you know, been around forever. And we saw we saw that 9-11, we, we just see constantly, you know, suicide bombings that start in Israel happen here. Anything, if you don't put a stop to it, people just go, oh, I guess I guess this is OK. This is normal behavior to just blow up a bus or a plane or a or a pizza shop. And so Israel is literally on the front lines fighting the battle of the world. And when he said that, I, I knew it, but it was it was so good to hear it from them from these people uh, mm. who are really defending all of humanity and just truth and goodness versus evil. But it was incredible. I was at a restaurant and these people came over to me and said, we, we have this restaurant where once a week we invite soldiers. Would you, would you come and talk? I go, would I? I, I, I want to perform for soldiers more than anything because we were trying to get shows together for soldiers, but there was like, well, there's a language barrier and it just never happened. And the second I got the chance, I, I said, is there a mic? Just get me a mic and I'll do it. And I was there and they were like, we didn't think you'd show up. I'm like, how could I not show up to make these people laugh? Mm. So that was incredible. Language barrier and all. I took my terrible, you know, Hebrew that if you look at, you know, Stand With Us actually posted a bit about how it's crazy that I don't speak Hebrew, Hebrew, even though I went to yeshiva for 15 years. And you could look at Stan with us's Instagram to see the rest of that bit. But I took whatever Hebrew I knew. I, you know, weaved it into into my material, and it was just such a magical, meaningful show. It really was. And you lifted you lifted all of those audiences that you 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 uh, performed Thanks. in front of here. And this is these are communities, and these are. Uh, this is a country that really needs it at, at this time. And of course, humor is super important, isn't it? I mean, getting these messages across, we've been in this war for four months um, and there are a lot of different ways to reach people, but humor can be an incredibly effective way. You know, when I watch someone like you or the Lieutenant Colonel, when I see him on CNN, it's such a source of pride to see this, again, super intelligent eloquent just the way he describes it with with such humanity where he explains we do not want civilian casualties we are losing our own people to avoid their people and and it's just inspiring to watch but there's there's that message which is crucial and more important than anything i or any comedian does but then there's a message through comedy and the great thing about comedy is you can tell the truth through jokes and when you're laughing you don't even realize that you're getting a message. You don't even realize that I'm making points that you would make, that the lieutenant colonel would make. But when it's sort of hidden and, and you know, and, and in the context of humor, you're just so busy enjoying yourself and laughing. And it's only in your subconscious that and then maybe you'll realize, oh, oh, he's right. Oh, maybe it is really that way. And when you could speak the truth about anything, you know. Most of comedy is the truth about, you know, relationships, human behavior, anything. But when it gets to political humor, uh, anything that I tackle, whether it's religion, politics, whatever, if you could speak truth in comedy, that's the best way to deliver any message. And while you were here, Ilan, we had news breaking of uh, terror tunnels and a whole HQ going on under the UNRWA, the UN Relief Agency's headquarters. And the denial of the head of that agency that they knew anything about it. 
and that caused you to do a bit. Uh, you uh, did a little sketch with none other than our friend, the head of UN Watch, the heroic Hillel Noya. An amazing um, guy. Of the An UN amazing Asia. guy. By the way, him and Elon Levy are my two new besties. No offense, amazing. Michael. You're, you're still no. up there. But They're getting to as well. know these heroes of our people was is incredible. They're ours as well. But let's take a look at that sketch with the none other than Hillel Noya. Hey, everybody. Elon Gold here reporting live from Jerusalem with some breaking news. I am here with Philippe Lazarini, who is the head of UNRWA. Is that correct? This is correct. Uh -huh. And there is some breaking news. I'm not sure if you heard about it. Perhaps I cannot comment. Okay. Well, I will comment and tell you that there was found under UNRWA, under the, I believe, headquarters. The headquarters. Oh, so you know about this. I hear the report. Uh-huh. The reports say that under the headquarters of UNRWA was Hamas with tunnels and, and, and you were providing electricity. The cables led right up to your headquarters. You did not know about this? Uh, we can state for the record. UNRWA did not know what is under its headquarters in Gaza. You didn't feel them building several stories under your feet. We are doing life-saving work and UNRWA is irreplaceable. That is true. UNRWA is saving the lives of all the Hamas terrorists. Thank you so much for all of your great work. Merci, Elon. Hey, bye. So, Michael, you know what was funny about that? The, the, the story goes like this. He, Hillel came to my show, which was so cool to have this legend hero at my show. And then I said, oh, let's go grab a bite after. And we grab a bite. And during the show, this news broke mm. about what UNRWA was hiding under, under their offices. And I, I, I even noticed, even though there's almost a thousand people there, you see when someone's looking down and texting, you're like, why is he texting in the middle of my show? He was getting this breaking news. Mm. And he came over after. He goes, did you hear what? Da, da, da. He goes, we have to do something about this. And he said, why don't you play the head of UNRWA has this French accent and he starts doing it. I go, you do a really good French accent. Wouldn't it be funny if I was the straight man and you were the funny guy playing him? Let's do that. And we just improvised that. And again, that was getting a message of such dark truth through mm. this little bit. And a lot of people saw it and they really liked it. But again, the, the real message is UNRWA has got to go and they are complicit and they are, you know, just, they're doing Hamas's dirty work for them. And the fact that the world in any way is supportive of this organization, we just saw a video of them kidnapping dead bodies, an UNRWA worker from, a, from the street. It's like, anyway, nothing makes sense to me, but it was very nice to have Hillel be the funny guy. And I was just his straight man. That was, that was a treat. A second career for him, perhaps. And, and, you know, you're so outspoken. You wear your heart on your sleeve. But do you find yourself confronting fellow celebrities, comedians who may be less informed or even misinformed or maybe even putting out bad information about Israel? I remember the first week of the war. It was a Friday afternoon. I spent three hours DMing a pretty famous comedian. I mean, she has almost a million followers and um, Netflix specials. And she was just putting out it wasn't just lies, it was blood libels. And a blood libel is so inciting and inflammatory and dangerous because what it does is when you read something like, and what she put out there was, the IDF is spraying phosphorus gas on Palestinians in Gaza, which is 
beyond the, uh, you know not true and would they would never even think of using chemical warfare and targeting innocent civilians ever and i had to explain this to her that not only is the idf so moral and is trying to avoid civilian casualties but they would never just commit this genocide that the world you know re- truly believes we're committing when all we're doing is trying to prevent one and it was 3 hours of back and forth and convincing her and i said what's really dangerous is what you're doing is not just a lie, but it's going to incite people to attack Jews globally. When they read this, what? This is what Jews are doing to these poor people? I'm going to go attack a Jew. I said, you have to do this. You're going to have Jewish blood on your hands. And most of all, it's a lie. It's a blatant lie. And she finally realized that, and three hours of back and forth, and she took that down. Of course, two days later, there was another blood libel, and there's only so much I could do and fight. But it is really unfathomable that people will post something without verifying it. The people believe it. They like to believe it. It's from the yeah. Jews kill Jesus time where it's like, you just need the lie. And then you have the excuse. They're almost chomping at the bit, waiting for the, excuse. what do the Jews do now? All right, let's get them. And it's, you just put out a lie and they believe it. And that's so much of the false narrative from Abbas, the leader of the PA saying, the Jews have no connection to Jerusalem. Uh, we made the connection to Jerusalem. You know, there were no temples that stood on the Temple Mount. Really? That flies in the face of every archaeologist, historian it, 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 of truth. So, but you put out a lie, you know, it's the Goebbels thing. You mm. just keep putting out a lie and people believe it. And then let's go get the Jews. So, you know, I, I do what I can. Listen, you guys are the heroes. The lieutenant colonel is the hero, that survivor and her grand great-grandchild. They're, they're the heroes, and everyone in the IDF are the heroes. I'm just a joke teller, and I try to do my best to just put out the truth, like I said, with humor. But there's only so much I could do. It's and really so, up to you to save the world, Michael. Well, 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 we'll all do it together, including everybody watching this. And when you were here, I mean, how do you mind that content? So you've got these blood libels coming at Israel, right? Israel's accused of occupation and you've got such a rise in anti-Semitism. And yet somehow you find that Jewish way of mining that for comedy. What, what, you know, what do you say about that when you're on stage? You know, it's so simple. It's my opening line in all my shows was I said, it's so good to be home with my fellow genocidal apartheid colonizers. And everybody laughed and cheered because it was like this break that everyone needed. All they've heard is these libelous false accusations, apartheid. Ask any Israeli Arab if Israel is an apartheid state. That's a lie. Genocide. Again, we're not perpetuating a genocide. We're we're preventing one. Mm. And, And colonizers. You know, I have a joke. The only place Jews ever colonized was the Catskills. We're bungalow colonizers. My, yeah, my grandfather had a bungalow colony in the Catskills. But co- no, everyone knows Israel is a decolonization project and that the British, no offense, Michael, had colonized the British mandate Palestine. And then we decolonized it and reclaimed, you know, our right to self-determination in our, in our ancestral indigenous homeland. So when I come out there and that's the opening line, it's just such a relief of, oh, my God, the whole world really believes this garbage. And they call us these horrible things as just because it's blood libels. And then to have a comedian come out there and just diffuse it with that one line, it's just like applause and laughs and everyone just had a good time said, okay, we needed this. What was it like uh, when it was time to leave and head out of Israel? It was painful. And, you know, 
it's such a cliche. I don't want to leave it. It's home. Here's here's how I mean this, and it's not a cliche. I'm coming back March 8th. I, I have a gig in Zurich, and I said, Zurich is pretty close, you know, a little closer than L.A., and I have this yearning to be there, and leaving is so difficult. And I went, I'm, I'm coming back, so I am coming back. I may just do a show. I'm going to try to do so, shows for soldiers again. But the truth is, you know how I really felt leaving? It was very upsetting. And I'll say this, and don't mock me for saying this because I'm not comparing myself to him, but I felt like Oscar Schindler. Wait for it. I know I didn't save anyone. I know I didn't do anything. But in that last scene of this incredible, beautiful movie, Schindler's List, where Oscar Schindler had just saved thousands of people, which is generations of people, and he's upset with himself. And he says, I could have done more. With this ring, I could have saved two more. With this watch, with this... And that's how I felt like, yeah, I made a few thousand people laugh. Yes, I, I went to, you know, I visited with families and, and, and hostage families and we cried and hugged together, but I could have done more and you just feel guilty. So I'm, I'm coming back and, and doing more. But God forbid, should when I come back, should there still be one hostage there? Because the fact Absolutely. that we are in day 135 is just unimaginable. But um, yeah, I could have done more and that's how I feel right now. And I hopefully will continue to do more. Well, you do an amazing job and we're so grateful for you. And thank you so much for coming here and lifting the people of Israel who appreciated it so much. And on national TV too. Incredible. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Ilan, so much. Now, before we go, a clip from our must-watch interview with Douglas Murray in which he paid a profound tribute to the Israeli people. Take a look. One of the most moving conversations I've had since I've been here was actually with a taxi driver the other week. And I say this with great hesitation because one of the rules of journalism is that you should never quote a taxi driver. (laughs) Not because taxi drivers cannot be filled with wisdom, but because it's journalistically lazy. Usually when somebody says, because normally journalists say, I was speaking to a source the other day. (laughs) Yeah, you were putting in the hard work on the way way to the bar. but I was speaking to a tax driver the other day, and he, um, he turned out he'd served in 73. And, so on. and he said something so moving to me. He said, um, we talked about what was going on. He had a child in the IDF, and everyone else knew people who'd suffered on October 7th. And he said to me, he said, I owe the younger generation an apology. He said, I owe them an apology. I said, why? He said, because... I thought young Israelis have become weak and thought they spent all of their time on X and, you know, Instagram and WhatsApp. They would spend all their time doing influencer stuff. And I thought that they, if we faced a situation like 73, I thought they would not. He said, I owe them an apology. They're remarkable. They've stepped up. And, and I, just, I just want to say in closing that that is one of the things that I take great hope from in this country. You know, and it's not just that the Israelis are doing well, that you're doing well. It's that I genuinely believe that the people of this country are giving an example to the world. When I speak to young people in this country who 
18, 19, 20, 21, 20. You know, what are you doing? Uh, I'm expert in intelligence in Yemen. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, I sort of say, well, well your, your contemporaries in America and Britain are like, wasting their lives with no concept of the world and no concept of the good they could actually do in the world. And these young men and women are going to are going to be in their 30s and their late 20s and be remarkable people, having done remarkable things and put through remarkable trials and having come through them. And I think that this is an example to the rest of the world. Everybody asks themselves, what would I do if, you know, the situation that my forebears went through? Everybody of my generation in the UK thinks, what would we have done in my grandparents' generation? Young Israelis have shown what they would do in their grandparents' generation. And they've shown not just their grandparents, but the world. And I want not Israelis to compare themselves to the rest of the world. I want the rest of the developed democracies of the world. I want their people to compare themselves with the Israelis. Because if they do, it's them that will be found wanting. And you can watch all of that fascinating conversation with Douglas Murray, our Stand With Us TV special on Stand With Us YouTube. Click on it and click on subscribe on our YouTube to get all our updates. You can join us on our Stand With Us WhatsApp channel to get updates every single day. We're keeping you updated around the clock via our tremendous social media team. And of course, you can go to standwithus.com slash situation room to get the latest news as well. Standwithus.com slash situation room. And you can help us battle anti-Semitism on social media. You can help us educate and give legal support to students in the BDS crossfire. Go to standwithus.com slash donate to keep our efforts strong. That's standwithus.com slash donate. And coming up, an opportunity, the Stand With Us International Israel in Focus Conference. It's a fascinating, unifying, and empowering weekend in Los Angeles for anybody who wants to stand up, fight anti-Semitism, and support Israel. I'll be emceeing, and I'd love to see you there too. We've got Deborah Messing, Brett Gelman, and a whole host of stars and heroes joining us March 1st till the 3rd. Go to standwithus.com to register for our international conference. We're sending love and support to our Israeli troops and to our brothers and sisters worldwide and our prayers for every hostage to be returned and back home with their families soon. Together we will prevail. Um, Yisrael, hi.